Our focus this morning is Romans chapter 7, verses 9 through 12, but let's start in verse 7 for context, and let's recognize this is the word of the Lord. Let all who have ears to hear, hear. Romans 7, 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me. And by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Amen. Let's ask for the Lord's help one more time as we approach in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your spirit who is able to enlighten our understanding with spiritual truth and change us from the inside to be like your glorious Son. This word of truth and the ministry of your Spirit is the focal point of your church. Help us, Lord. Help us to hear. Help us to love the truth. Help us to see ourselves as you see us. And help us to gain a greater glimpse of the glory of God this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated, brethren. Well, it's been a few weeks since we've last been together in our study of the book of Romans. Um, we had the Shepherds Conference a few weeks ago, where Pastor Stan and I and Brother Roy uh, went down and were blessed by that experience. And then we had a guest preacher that Sunday that we got back, um, Brother Matt Cease from Riverside Church in Emmett, and we were blessed in hearing from Brother Matt about Psalm 104. Last week, Pastor Stan uh, continued a wonderful study in Ephesians chapter 3. I'm just thankful, thankful for the ministry of the Word of God that is happening here, and it's no thanks to anyone other than the Lord Himself for His grace to sustain a church, build a church, um, give us hearts to appreciate and love Him and want more and more of Him. And so that is my heart, and I know that is many of your hearts as well. Um, so this morning we are continuing in our study of Romans chapter 7. We saw in the first portion of Romans 7, uh, really the first six verses, the topic of the Christian's relationship to the law. What is the Christian's relationship, the one who is justified and who is being sanctified all by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus? What is his new or his new relationship to the law? And the answer that we saw was that we are free from the law. In what sense? Free from its condemnation. The law has taken on new meaning for us. The law is no longer a law of sin and death, which is another way of saying condemnation. But for the believer, for the Christian, the law is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The law, rather than condemning us, actually cleanses and transforms us to be more like His Son. Amazing truth. And then in verses 7 through 12, we have been looking at what the law has power to do. What the law has power to do. And we saw last time, three weeks ago, that the law has power to show us our sinfulness. Look at verse 7 again with me. Paul's asking this question, what shall we conclude about the law? Is the law sin? And he says, certainly not. That's the most emphatic um, way of saying, God forbid, may it never be in the Greek. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. And that idea of knowing is so important because he's not talking about a casual acquaintance with his own sin. He's talking about an intimate understanding that the law has brought him to 
to see himself as he really is. In other words, the law has come to function like a mirror to show Paul his own sinfulness and to come to realize for the first time that he was a coveter, a coveter, a a person who has a strong desire for what is forbidden by God and that he came to that conviction in his heart. He saw that his coveting was not an external action, but it was something that began in his thought life and that he was as guilty for being a coveter as he would have been in committing any of the external acts of sin as he understood the law. And he says in verse... uh, So, tucked into this section of verses 7 through 12, which has to do, again, with the law and its power, a power to show us our sin, we have an interesting and very insightful commentary about the power of sin, the power of sin. And and last time we looked at how it has this power, sin has a power to distort or defile what is most holy. And that was really the idea in verse 8. Look at verse 8. But sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. Um, That covetousness that he came to understand as the law had said repeatedly, you shall not covet, Paul. He came to understand that he was sinning constantly and that it was sin that was taking opportunity or using as its starting place, its base of operations, the commandment of God and leveraging it like a fulcrum in order to work out in him all kinds of evil desire. Sin has incredible power, is what Paul wants us to understand from his own testimony, and as is true in the Christian life for all of us, well, for everyone. This law, excuse me, sin has incredible power. In fact, uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, and I quoted it last time, that Apart from the power of God, which is the greatest power in the universe, next to that, sin has the greatest power. It's an incredible power that we have no ability to deal with in the flesh. There's no resource in the realm of the flesh to curb our own sinfulness or our own sin. And Paul is saying that's exactly what his testimony was. Sin was just leveraging what is good, the law, what is best in order to work out in him nothing but more and more sin and death. And there was nothing he could do to stop it. That process was being brought to fruition constantly in him. The power of sin. It distorts even the holy law of God to bring about its own uh, nefarious purposes. Today we're going to look at the power of sin through a slightly different lens. Related But in terms of sin's deceitfulness, sin is deceitful. It's powerful because of its ability to deceive the sinner. We're going to see that in verses 9 through 11. And there are two ways in particular that Paul testifies to how he was deceived or how he came to understand his deception. We're going to see in verse 9 that Paul was deceived about his spiritual well-being his well-being, that he saw himself as alive when he was actually deceived and he was dead. We're going to see in verse 10 that Paul was deceived about his spiritual abilities, his ability to keep the commandment. And then Paul, in verses 11 11 and 12, is going to identify the source of the deception, the source. So let's look at these three points in turn. The first is deception number one, Paul's own understanding of his spiritual well-being. Look at verse 9 with me. I was alive once without the law, but when the law came, excuse me, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. I was alive. He uses the imperfect tense, meaning there was a continual state that he was in, in the past, when he was alive, formerly. Without the law, he says, or some translations say apart from the law. 
In what sense was Paul alive without the law? Well, we saw in verse 8 the idea here, apart from the law. In fact, he uses the same phrase in 8 and 9. At the end of verse 8, for apart from the law, sin was dead. And we saw what that meant was apart from the power of the law to expose sin for what it really is. Apart from that power, Paul says he was alive. In other words, he was doing okay in his own mind. He, he felt spiritually alive, vital, self-confident, powerful, not in any kind of danger, but really in control of his own life and, and frankly, proud of his accomplishments as a Pharisee. We hear about Paul's own testimony of his life before Christ in Philippians chapter 3. Listen to verses 4 through 6, Philippians 3. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. This is the testimony of a self-satisfied man who was very confident in his own abilities. He was confident in his pedigree, his ancestry. He was a true Israelite. He could name the particular tribe he came from. He was circumcised, which means his parents were obedient to the law. He was a legitimate Jew. He was not illegitimate or mixed in any way. We know that he was fastidious in the law. He, was, he gave great attention to detail and accuracy in his study of the law. That was what was required in order to be a Pharisee. And frankly, he thought he was doing God's service by persecuting the church. He thought he was working for God by persecuting the way, these believers in Jesus Christ. And he says it in his own words, I saw myself as blameless blameless, righteous. What a statement. He gives us a little bit more about his own testimony in Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, where he says, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my father's. He saw his persecuting of the church really as a badge of honor. And he compared himself, or when he compared himself with others, his own contemporaries, he saw himself as superior, more zealous than his contemporaries. So really the, the best of the best in his mind. This is a man who felt alive. He knew who he was. He loved his life. He believed he was serving the Lord. He had righteousness by his own obedience to the law. Paul had what our culture today says that we are lacking more than anything, and that, that is this, a positive self-image. Paul had good self-esteem. He felt alive. We see this in many other testimonies in Scripture as well, don't we? The parable or the account of the, the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19, for example, just turn there with me for a moment. Matthew 19. This rich young man comes to our Lord Jesus and he says to him in verse 16, Good teacher, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? Right off the bat we see that this young man has a wrong conception of goodness. He obviously believes that man can be good. He calls Jesus good. Jesus says to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. And if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. So this man says, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not lie, bear false witness. You shall obey your father and your mother. You will love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said, all these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? He felt alive. He didn't see himself as a sinner. He didn't see himself as one who had broken God's law. 
And Jesus said, if you want to be perfect, go, sell what you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. You see, Jesus exposed to this young man that he had violated the first of the commandments, that you will not have any other gods before me. This man's God was money, wealth, and all that it purchased for him, prestige, reputation. And sadly, rather than repenting, this man walks away from Jesus because he was alive to himself, but he was dead to God. And that's the case with all who feel they are alive. And then we have this account of the older brother in the story of the prodigal in Luke chapter 15. And, excuse me, Luke chapter, um, Luke chapter 15. And you'll remember the story. The younger brother um, asks for his inheritance from his father who is still alive. Another way of saying, I don't care about you, Dad. Um, you might as well be dead. He takes his father's inheritance. He goes out and he squanders all of it. And then the Lord providentially brings a famine upon the land and upon him so that he's in great need. He's run out of resource and now there's extra pressure because there's no food to be had anywhere. And he goes and he joins himself to a citizen of that country and he does what would be eminently shameful for a Jew, joining himself to somebody uh, who's a pig farmer, and his job was to be out with the pigs in the mire and in the slop. And he was so hungry, he was tempted to eat the food that the pigs themselves were eating. And he comes to this moment of realization. He comes to himself, is what the text says in verse 17. And he says, if I only return to my father. How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare and I perish with hunger? And so he goes back to the father and he, he wants to come to the father, not as a son anymore, but he wants to come as a hired servant to work for his father, to, to work for the father's favor. And of course, we know this glorious story. The father represents the Lord and in his compassion, he actually sees the son afar off before the son even sees him and he runs to him which would have been shameful in that culture for an older man to raise up his long robe and run, but he does because of love for this son. A wonderful picture of the love of God for us and his willingness to take our shame upon himself in the cross. But back to this older brother. This older brother sees his younger brother come home. And he's angry. He's angry because this younger brother comes home and rather than receiving a scolding, which he would deserve, punishment for treachery against the father, they're throwing a party for him. His father's throwing a party for him. So the father comes out to this older son and he pleads with him. And just picking up in verse 29, so he answered, this is the older brother answering the father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a goat that I might make merry with my friends. Does this man see his sinfulness? This man feels alive. He points to how he never once transgressed the father. He always obeyed him perfectly. Is that true? In fact, in this conversation, he re reveals his true motivation for serving the Father. And what was it? That you might give me a goat so that I can make merry with my friends? The only reason that he was serving him is for what he could get from the Father, not because he loved the Father. In verse 30, But as soon as this son of yours came who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you can hear the um, resentment in his voice, can't you? You killed the fatted calf for him. This is a man who has bitter envy, covetousness, anger in his heart toward his brother. He was alive in his own mind, yes, but he didn't perceive his own sinfulness. He was very much dead spiritually. Verse 31, and he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. This is the grace of the father. There's nothing to earn. In fact, the inheritance had already been distributed the older brother had his 
father's inheritance. But he wasn't satisfied with that. He wanted more. He wanted something to satisfy the lust of his own flesh. He wanted food, a party, the praise of his friends, not the praise of his father. And the father says in verse 32, It was right that we should make make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again. And he was lost and is found. The younger brother was the spiritually dead one, but when he came to his senses by the grace of God and repented, he showed, he evidenced that he was actually the alive one. And he showed it by coming to his father in repentance. This older brother who thought he was alive and was spiritually truly the really dead one, he didn't see any need of repentance, did he? He had no perception of his own true sinfulness. And that's how it is. I felt alive. But he was dead. Or over just a couple pages to the Pharisee and the tax collector in chapter 18 of Luke, this parable is started by saying in verse 9, He, Jesus, spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. This is about a Pharisee who trusted in his own goodness. He felt perfectly alive. Listen to his own testimony. The Lord says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a publican or a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. He's pointing to what he does for the Lord, right? He's looking to his own goodness. He's not looking to the Lord, even though he has come up to the temple to pray. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, the humble one, the one who knew that he was dead, went down to his house justified rather than than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. One felt alive, but was really dead. The other felt his deadness because he was really alive. That's the paradox. And so Paul, I believe, was saying something like that, coming back to Romans chapter 7. Paul was saying, I was that rich young ruler. I was that older brother. I was that consummate Pharisee when he was in the flesh. He never saw the law as a mirror exposing his own sin, showing him who he really was. But he says, when the commandment came, now this is the hinge point. This is the critical part that we have to understand. What does Paul mean here, when the commandment came? Now, first of all, commandment. He uses this word for commandment to refer to the whole law, as we're going to see in verse 10. But particularly to this 10th commandment, to you will not covet. And that's exactly where the Lord convicted him, that he had a problem in his heart. He was a covetous man. And he uses the aorist tense, the past tense, something that designates an event that happens at one point in time in the past when he says the commandment came. The Greek literally says, but having come the commandment. And when we hear this word come or came, normally it's used of people moving from one physical location to another. We say this person has come to this location, they've arrived. But the sentence in which it's used here is that it came into being. It showed itself for what it is. It appeared to Paul's consciousness. The commandment, the law, showed itself for what it is. And he says, here's what happened. Sin revived and I died. Revived. It, it, it came to life. Or actually, a good translation is, it sprang to life. Sin sprang to life like a jack-in-the-box, if you will. It popped out of the box and showed him what was there the whole time, but what, what, but what was concealed. And now it shows really not a 
happy clown face, but it shows a venomous snake was hiding out in his heart the whole time and biting him, poisoning him, and killing him. That's the sense. The commandment came, sin revived, and I died. He's not talking about physical death because obviously he's writing this testimony as a physically alive person. He's saying his self-righteous image was shattered. All that he thought that was in the plus column for him in terms of his accomplishments and his pedigree, his work for the Lord, so-called, all of that broke in a moment like glass being shattered. And he felt like a dead person before God. The law exposed that to his heart and to his mind. He didn't feel alive anymore. He knew for certain that he was spiritually dead. And he felt like a prisoner condemned on death row. So here's the deception. Paul felt alive. But he found that to be a lie. He realized he was not the blameless man he thought he was. And so now we listen to Paul's testimony continue in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. He says, but what things were gained to me? This is his confidence that he had in his flesh, in his, his own self. These I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish. That's a mild term. The word is dung, refuse, manure. The worst. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. So here we have Paul's shift now in his understanding of himself, this work of the law that has come to him in power. And he sees that his trust in himself is not only worthless but worse, it's actually repulsive. It's good for nothing but to be thrown out as you would throw out manure. He was stripped of all his pride and his self-confidence. Isaac Watts, the great hymnist, he writes in, when I survey the wondrous cross, these wonderful lines that are so related to what we're talking about. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. I see my pride as a hindrance. I see my pride as offensive. I see my pride as reprehensible in the sight of God, and I hate it. And you might say, well, when did that happen in Paul's particular experience? I don't think we know exactly the, to pinpoint when that happened in his experience, but I would say quite possibly on his Damascus Road conversion. In Acts chapter 9, when the Lord Jesus knocks him and his company to the ground and begins to speak the word of God to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the pricks, Paul. And we're told in Acts 9, verse 6, that Paul, hearing this word of the living Lord Jesus, though blinded because of this light that blinded him and knocked him down, that he trembled. He was fearful. And he was astonished, literally out of his mind, at this living word that came to him. The commandment came, sin revived, and I died. Paul, you're not loving the Lord with all your heart or even any of your heart as you thought. You're actually my enemy. And when you persecute my church, you're really persecuting me. What a deception. What a deception. Paul thought he was spiritually healthy in doing the Lord's service, and he had it all wrong. The deceitfulness of sin. I want to illustrate this idea for you of the commandment coming, sin reviving, and dying um, by asking this question. When the Lord brought his law to Israel as a nation at Mount Sinai, how did the law come to them then? Let's look at this together. Exodus 19. Turn there with me. We're going to come back to Romans 7, but 
I think this is important to understand more of this notion of the commandment coming. In Exodus chapter 19, we have an account of Israel being gathered together to Mount Sinai. And the Lord tells Moses, his appointed man, his mediator between himself and the people, that the people are to consecrate themselves today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes. This is verse 10 of Exodus 19. And let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. And so Moses went down, verse 14, from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day, and do not come near your wives. Now look at verse 16. This is all part of the sanctifying process, a a process that they were to do physically to symbolize you cannot come near the Lord as you currently are. You must be cleansed. Look at verse 16. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. There's the fear. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Can you imagine being there and experiencing the visual and auditory spectacle that God is putting on display for these people? That would have been terrifying. Terrifying. And we see that in verse 18. But before then, what happens? Moses comes down and speaks all the words of the law, the Ten Commandments, to the people. We have an accounting of that in Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. So we have this frightful scene, followed by the giving of God's law, and then the response of the people in verse 18. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. And they said to Moses, you speak with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. The people were terrified. They were being taught, you cannot come into the presence of the Lord on your own. You need a mediator, Moses, to speak with you. Because to come into the presence of God as a sinful person or a sinful group of people is absolutely terrifying. The Lord is holy above all things. He is altogether separate from sin and he is described as a consuming fire that burns against sin and sinners. So how did the commandment come to Israel as a nation at Sinai? It was clearly paired with a great display of force and power that would cause fear and trembling in everyone. And here's the reason why. Look at verse 19 and 20. Actually, verse 20. And Moses said to the people, do not fear. That's interesting. They are fearing. That's the natural response to these physical displays of power God is showing. But he says, do not fear that physical display. For God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. What does he mean? You see, to give a sinful people, um, God is giving a sinful people with hard hearts some way of understanding something of the awesomeness and the holiness of the Lord, right? 
They're not able to feel and experience that awesomeness in their hearts yet because they have hard hearts. So God is giving them a physical display of His holiness and His wrath against sinful man. And by that physical example of terror, he was saying to them, something of this physical terror needs to take place in your heart in order for the fear of God to remain with you. This group of people are going to leave Sinai and go out into the wilderness. And are they going to retain the fear of the Lord before them? They won't. We know the rest of the story. They're going to grumble and complain against the Lord. The Lord is going to destroy that whole first generation of Israelites except for Joshua and Caleb. And he's going to cause them to wander for 40 years in basically a circuit because of their disobedience. Moses, in his own testimony later in chapter 29 of Deuteronomy, when he is with the people toward the end of Moses' ministry, is in Moab just before Joshua is going to take them across the Jordan because the Lord will not allow Moses to cross over for not hallowing the Lord in the eyes of the people at that incident when he struck the rock in anger. But the Lord, through Moses, says this in Deuteronomy 29, verse 2. He says, Now Moses called all Israel and said to them, You've seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials which your eyes have seen. He's talking about all the ten plagues in Egypt. He's talking about bringing Israel out with a mighty hand through the Red Sea, bringing them to Sinai where they saw these, this mighty display of power. You've seen all the signs and those great wonders, yet, verse 4, the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see, and ears to hear to this very day. They saw something of the fear of the Lord physically with their physical eyes and with their physical ears. But they didn't retain that fear in their hearts because the Lord had not given them hearts to perceive, eyes to see, ears to hear, to this very day. So this is that next generation. The first generation was laid waste in the wilderness. Even the next generation who were about to cross into the promised land The Lord says he has not given them a heart to understand. And in chapter 31, Moses says, you are going to rebel. After I'm gone, you are going to rebel because of the hardness of your hearts. And so the Lord has Moses make a song which will be used as a testimony against the people because of their hardness of heart. This is what happens when the fear of the Lord is not inward. People lose the fear of the Lord. They, they might experience something of the terror of the Lord for a moment, but it doesn't endure, it doesn't stay with them. But when the Lord wants to teach a man the fear of God so that it remains before him, so that it actually keeps him from sinning, he brings the law to his heart with power. He causes the commandment to come to him in power and force. And then sin springs to life. He sees himself for who he is, and he dies in his own estimation of himself. He's no longer alive. We see a wonderful accounting of this with King Josiah, don't we? After the law was discovered, after being hidden through the reigns of Manasseh and Ammon, wicked kings in Judah, the law was hidden in the house of God, in the temple. There was no Bible. Well, it was there. It just wasn't discovered until Hilkiah came and discovered it. And it was brought to Shaphan, the scribe, and it was brought then to the hearing of King Josiah, who when he heard the word of the Lord and the great wrath of God against his people for their disobedience, tore his clothes and repented and then proclaimed the word of the Lord to all the people in their hearing, calling them to repentance as he had himself repented. The word of the Lord had come in power to King Josiah. We see the same thing with The Gentiles, don't we? With Jonah, when he is told to preach to the Ninevites. And he preaches a very simple message. Here it is. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. No exposition. No clever preaching. 
just the word of God, succinct and deadly powerful. And the response of the people is they believed God. They proclaimed a fast. They put on sackcloth from the least to the greatest of them. And then in Jonah 3, 6, we're told this, the word came to the king of Nineveh himself. He arose from his throne. He laid aside his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth, sackcloth and sat in ashes. A picture of repentance. The word of the Lord came in power to the king of Nineveh. That's the idea of what Paul is talking about here in back to Romans 7. The commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And Paul had already given us a preview of this, hadn't he, in Romans chapter 3. In verse 19 he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Who's that? Everybody. Everyone is under the law. That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that the law of God speaks? This word is living and powerful. It speaks to the heart. It's able to cut your heart and divide marrow from bone, thought from intent, to get at the place where only the Lord can in your innermost person. This word is alive. And when it comes to you in power, it stops your mouth. You stop trying to defend yourself and your goodness. You stop seeing that you are alive and proud and self-confident and you humble yourself before the Lord. This happens to everyone. The question is when. Will it happen now in this day of grace before the Lord comes in great judgment and power? after which there will not be an opportunity to repent, every mouth will be silenced at that great and final day. But then it will be too late. There will be no opportunity for salvation. Now is the period of grace when the Lord is working powerfully, quietly often, by the soft-spoken word of His powerful word, which works in the heart of man and changes him by giving him a right understanding of himself and a right understanding of God, which always leads to repentance and a cry of desperation, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I'm not looking to my work anymore. I'm looking to your work. You alone are righteous. I'm not. So the first deception is Paul was deceived about his spiritual well-being. He thought he was alive, but he was really dead. The second deception, verse 10 of Romans 7. Second deception is Paul was deceived about his spiritual abilities. His spiritual abilities. Verse 10, And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. Or literally the commandment which was to life, I found to death. The very commandment that promised life, the ESV says. Or the commandment which was to result in life or lead to life as the New American Standard and the LSB say. He found to bring death. Now, why did Paul believe this deception? Why was this a deception for Paul? That he believed that the commandment could bring life. Well, plain and simply because Paul knew his Old Testament. He knew Leviticus 18.5 that says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. He knew that in Deuteronomy 28, God had pronounced blessing for obedience and cursing for disobedience. And it seemed that if you could just obey the law, that you would have life. You would be eminently blessed. Is that true? Well, it is true that the law could bring life or would bring life if it were used lawfully. Why shouldn't it? The law, he says, is holy and just and good. The law is a reflection of God's own holiness, justice, and goodness. And if a man were to keep it perfectly, he would be perfectly happy, just like God is perfectly happy in himself. So yes, the law could bring life or would bring life if it's used lawfully. But it's not. That's the problem. 1 Timothy 1.8, Paul says this in the context of Judaizers who had gone astray from the truth and they were trying to set themselves up as teachers of the law. 
but who really didn't even understand what they were saying. Paul says this, 1 Timothy 1.8, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, the law was not made for a righteous person. Why? Because no one's righteous. No, not one. There is no one righteous who can use the law lawfully. The Jews, you remember, did not see themselves as sinners. Right? Their view was the, that the Gentiles were the sinners, the other nations who were not the blessed people of God. And they viewed sin as only external deeds done in the flesh, not anything internal in their thought life. And so they did seek their righteousness through obedience to the law as they thought that they could do it. We saw, or we will see in Romans chapter 9, that these Jews sought righteousness from the law, but it was futile. Paul says in Romans 9, verse 30, What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame because that stumbling stone and rock of offense is Jesus Christ. And they wholesale rejected him. And he says in verse 3 of chapter 10, For they, continuing his discussion of the Jews, ethnic Jews, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end, the terminating point, the fulfillment of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. That's Leviticus 18.5 again. So the Jews had this idea that they could keep the law. Paul was one of them. And they sought righteousness in and through the law by obedience to it. But Paul was deceived there as well, wasn't he? The commandment, he says, which was to bring life, back to chapter 7, I found to bring death. Death. And actually, <laughs> the New King James, which is what I'm reading from here, um, has it wrong in its translation. The translation does not say, I found to bring death. Actually, the passive form of I found is used. So it's not I found it, but it found me. The commandment, when it came, found me out. It discovered me and my true self, my true nature as a sinner, you see. Paul didn't discover anything. God had discovered him. What a commentary on the state of man in general in this world. He thinks he's got God under a microscope. In all his scientific wisdom, he thinks he can find out anything. He just has to search for it, and he, he'll get there. But the truth is, is that God has us under the microscope. He discovers us, and then He lets us know by His grace, you're a sinful man, sinful woman. You have no righteousness, and you're not obeying my law. The commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. Actually, the commandment was found for me as leading to death rather than life. In other words, I thought I could get life from obeying the commandment, but actually I found that it only worked against me and it condemned me to death. What a deception. Paul thought he had an ability to keep the law, but then came to see that he had no ability at all. And his understanding is now solidified for us in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law, in other words, those who rely on the works of the law, who think that they can obey the law for righteousness, they are under the curse, Galatians 3, 10. 
For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Paul came to see himself as under the curse because he came to see himself as a covetous man. Not just once, but constantly. Constantly he had broken the law. James says, repeats the same idea in chapter 2, verse 10 of his letter. He says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. It's like links in a chain that are all connected together. And if you break one of those chains, the in, one of those links, the integrity of the entire chain is broken. Or here's another example, a piece of glass. When you break the law, you shatter the glass in one location. What happens? It spiders to the whole piece of glass and it's destroyed. No, it is not possible to gain righteousness through the law because of our sinfulness. That's the issue. The problem is not the law. The problem is us. So Paul is going to say in Galatians 3, verse 21, For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the Scripture has confined all under sin... That language is, the law has thrown a net over all of us like a shoal of fish to trap us. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. It traps us in order for us to see our desperate condition before the Lord. And then he brings us, as he's going to say, like a tutor brings children to a schoolmaster. He's going to bring us to Christ to see Jesus as the remedy that who alone can open that net and allow us to go free as his slaves. It's not possible to keep the righteousness of the law. So Paul was deceived about his spiritual well-being. He was deceived about his spiritual ability. And now, so that we are crystal clear on the source, the cause of the deception. Look at verse 11. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it killed me. This is a conclusive statement when he says for, here we go, sin. For, here's the conclusion, the explanation of verses 9 and 10. Paul, why did you feel alive and then realize you were dead? Paul, why was the commandment found to lead to death for you? Sin deceived me. That's the force that was at work in him that was deceiving him. So not only was uh, sin at work in him using the good command of God, the law of God like a fulcrum in order to work out all kinds of evil desire in his heart, but it also deceived him completely. And the word that he uses here for deceived is a strengthened form of the word deceive, which means totally deceived, totally seduced. He had it all wrong. Isn't this the testimony that we just testified when we sang that great song, O O Great God? I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys. That was our condition. That was our condition. But thank God he doesn't stop there. (laughs) Then your spirit gave me life. Opened up your word to me. There's the law coming in power. Through the gospel of your son. Through the message, the only message that can save. The good news that Jesus Christ died for sinners such as you and me. And through that message he gave me endless hope and peace. Sin deceived me, and by it, sin killed me. The word is slew me, utterly destroyed me. Doesn't that sound like our reading of Isaiah 6 this morning in our call to worship? Isaiah, who saw something of the glory of the Lord in his temple, high and lifted up, his robes filling the temple, Just listen to this one more time with this lens of the commandment coming powerfully. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, 
and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. There's the commandment, the law, the declaration of God himself. He is holy and the whole earth is full of his glory. And then look at verse 4. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Does that remind us of something? Sinai? He was undone, he says, in response to this. Woe is me, for I am undone. Literally, disintegrated. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. There is the fear and trembling that Paul experienced, excuse me, that Isaiah experienced. There is the sin revived and I died idea. I am undone. Why? For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He had a vision where he saw the glory of God and he was humbled greatly by it. He trembled greatly at it. Brothers and sisters, this is not just a picture of Isaiah the prophet in the Old Testament. This is for our instruction. When we are brought face to face with the glory of the living God in the person of Jesus Christ, something like this, something of this Sinai experience has to happen inside of our hearts where we tremble and fear greatly and we see ourselves as undone so that we cry out to the Lord for deliverance. And the Lord graciously, graciously sends his servant, an angel, to Isaiah here, and he touches his lips with a hot coal, as if to say, you are cleansed. He justifies the man by grace, and then he commissions him to go. And that is true of all of us. So this experience that Paul is relating back in Romans 7, and really verses 7 through 12. This is all what we could call law work. That was an old term that the Puritans used to use, and they were so um, urgent about including law work when they preached because they understood this principle that when the law is preached, the law comes in power to God's elect. He opens the hearts of his people He humbles them greatly. He gives them a vision for the glory of God and brings them to repentance. This law work is what God is doing to prepare Paul to look to the only solution, Jesus Christ, his Lord, his Savior, the Deliverer. And so it is with us. I want to close with um, a poem that was written by Robert Murray McShane. In the early 1800s, he was a minister in the Church of Scotland. And he didn't have a very long life. He only lived 29 years. But the Lord gave him an incredibly fruitful ministry in those 29 years. And when he was 21, he wrote a poem called Jehovah Tzidkenu, which means Jehovah or the Lord, our righteousness. And it really was a picture of his own conversion, his salvation testimony. Listen to Robert Murray McShane. In this poem, The Lord Our Righteousness. I was once a stranger to grace and to God. I knew not my danger and felt not my load. Though friends spoke in rapture of Christ on the tree, Jehovah Tzidkenu was nothing to me. I oft read with pleasure to soothe or engage Isaiah's wild measure and John's simple page. But even when they pictured the blood-sprinkled tree, Jehovah Tzidkenu seemed nothing to me. Like tears from the daughters of Zion that roll, I wept when the waters went over his soul, yet thought not that my sins had nailed to the tree. Jehovah Tzidkenu was nothing to me. When free grace awoke me by light from on high, Then legal fears shook me. I trembled to die. No refuge, no safety in self could I see. 
Jehovah said, Canoe, my Savior must be. My terrors all vanished before the sweet name. My guilty fears banished with boldness I came. To drink at the fountain, life-giving and free, Jehovah Tzid Canoe is all things to me. Jehovah Tzid Canoe, my treasure and boast. Jehovah Tzid Canoe, I never can be lost. In thee I shall conquer by flood and by field, my cable, my anchor, my breastplate, my shield. Even treading the valley, the shadow of death, this watchword shall rally my faltering breath. For while from life's fever my God sets me free, Jehovah Tzidkanu my death song shall be. Wonderful testimony. Brothers and sisters, how many in the visible church today are self-deceived about their spiritual well-being? who think that they're alive when in truth they're spiritually dead? How many are self-deceived that they are able to do good works and that they can keep God's law in some measure when in fact they've never first come to see their own inability, utter inability to do anything that pleases God in themselves? Friends, have you been shaken in your soul by the Lord with these legal fears and a a trembling to die, as our brother McShane put it? Have you been brought to the point where you've seen that there is no refuge in yourself from the terror and the, the, the wrath of Almighty God against your sin? Have you seen your sin as Paul describes it in the verses we looked at today in Romans 7? as that which totally seduced you and led you to believe that you were spiritually alive when you were, in fact, spiritually dead. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Our hearts cannot even be trusted because of the tainting of sin in them, that indwelling of sin. Our hearts that would lead us north actually lead us south, away from the Lord. The heart of a sinner is totally polluted and cannot be trusted. So, it's just another way of saying we can't discover the Lord on our own. He must discover us. Friends, do you see how powerful sin is? Powerful in its deception in particular? The one who seeks his righteousness by the law must keep every facet of the law perfectly. But the righteousness of faith speaks this way. Don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss or the depths of the ocean, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. The righteousness of faith does not speak like that, that I will do something to ascend to God, or I will do something to bring up from the dead. No one has that power except for the Lord. He himself in Jesus Christ, has descended to rescue us. He himself has the power to raise the dead as he raised himself and has raised each one of you and me spiritually. No, the righteousness of faith says this. The word is near to you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. This is the word of faith which I'm preaching to you this morning that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God had raised, has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's the promise of Scripture. If you believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, friends, do not harden your heart against the Lord. This is a day of grace. Israel hardened their hearts against the Lord and he destroyed them as an example for us that we would not do the same. Hear the word of the Lord. Repent. If you don't know him this morning, repent. There's no formula for coming to salvation in Christ. 
Just cry out to him in desperation. And if you don't feel your desperation, ask him to make that known to you. That the power of the law of God would come to you and humble you. So that he might exalt you in salvation and deliver you from yourself and from sin and from his own wrath which comes on all the ungodly. And if you do know him this morning, praise the Lord from what you have been delivered from. That the law of God has had its work in your heart and is continuing to have a work in your heart where you fear the Lord. No longer because you are condemned, but because you reverence this great God who has the power of life and death in his hands. He is great and worthy of all our praise. Let us live for him this day and this week, brothers and sisters. Let us exalt his great name together as we read in Psalm 34. He has delivered us from all our fears and he will yet deliver us in the last day. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, which is true, which is life-giving. You are the fountain of all life. And Father, apart from you, we can do nothing. Your son, the Lord Jesus, said the very same thing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. A man can only come to you, drawn by you, coming through the precious mediatorial work of the greater Moses, the Lord Jesus, through whom we have access by grace to stand in your presence fully justified, cleansed, forgiven, righteous, through no doing of our own. Thank you, Lord. Help us this day to meditate on these truths, and we pray that you would do the work that only you can do in our hearts. Change us by your word and by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.